Welcome to Crossroads, a podcast that explores the intersection of faith and Christian living. Crossroads is part of the media ministry at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. Get to know us by visiting us online at fapc.org. Hi, I'm Jamie Staley, Director of Christian Education at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. And this is the first episode of our fall series, Do Not Be Afraid, Encountering God in Times of Fear. 2020 has been quite a year, and we're definitely not even finished with it yet. From the spread of coronavirus to protests against police brutality to the upcoming presidential election, fear is a word on the tongues of a lot of people in our country. So this fall, we are going to dive into this topic that many of us have felt or are feeling right now. Today, I am joined by Dr. Scott Bader-Say, Academic Dean, and Helen and Everett H. Jones, Professor of Christian Ethics and Moral Theology at Seminary of the Southwest in Austin, Texas. That's a long one. (laughs) To say, to talk about what our faith says about this culture of fear. So thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Bader Say. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Oh, it's really good to have you here. You know, this this idea of, of fear and the fear that people are feeling right now um, isn't, isn't new. Uh, you've been studying the idea of fear in our society for quite some time now. Um, how, how do you see this culture of fear playing out in new ways in this past year? We've had a lot of new things to be afraid of in this past year. So if you track back historically, uh, different kinds of fears emerge in uh, different historical periods. And certainly even if you track back over the last few decades in our own country and in the West, um, you see particular kinds of fears emerge and recede. Uh, What you don't find is that fear simply goes away. Um, It finds a way to morph into new things, partly because uh, we're human beings and we're, we're wired to look out for things that might be threatening to what we love. So fear is fear is built into us as human beings. Fear is not fundamentally a problem with being human. Um, it's, it's part of our early warning system. But it's also true that fear can be manipulated or fear can become excessive or we can fear the wrong things. And so in many ways, fear can get in the way of of living good lives, living healthy lives, living lives that are consistent with our own faith and values. It just turns out that this last year or so has presented us with some really substantial issues uh, that are promoting a lot of fear in our country. As you mentioned, uh, certainly the pandemic, um, racial unrest having to do with a, a significant and important racial reckoning in our country. Um, political fears uh, that are really heightened by uh, the divide between political parties right now, Um, a divide that now is not just, I think, construed as disagreement with others, but like a fundamental incapacity to understand how the other side could even believe what they believe. Um, And so the, the gulf gets wider, and as the gulf gets wider and the trust breaks down, fear steps in. Um, The other side is not just wrong, they're actually threatening. Um, They're scary now. And uh, that, I think, has introduced some some new dynamics into uh, how fear has gripped our culture this year. 
you know, as a as a um, theology professor, what do you see as the Bible's response to this type of fear? You know, you you mentioned that fear in itself is not bad. You know, it's a it's a good response for us to have in, in some cases. But as far as as this this culture of fear, or the fear this. I guess, irrational fear. Uh, What do you see as the Bible's response to that? Scripture gives us uh, a number of different places to go to, to try to examine uh, where fear comes from and and what its results can be in our lives. If you look all the way back in the Garden of Eden, you see in uh, Genesis 3 the first time that human beings actually feel fear. And so this is the moment where Adam and Eve eat of the tree, Uh, of the garden that they're told not to eat of. And in that moment, they have this recognition of their vulnerability before each other. Um, They recognize their nakedness, and so they hide their bodies. And they cover up. And that hiding, I think, is an expression of fear. Uh, They're no longer comfortable um, being that open, that vulnerable before each other. So this fear enters in at that point, and then you can see it magnified when God comes into the garden, and they hide from God. Because God has already said, if you eat of this tree, you will die. And in that moment, then, uh, what they're hiding from uh, ostensibly is God, but in fact, uh, they're also really hiding from death. And so they hide, they're afraid, uh, God calls them out. And in that moment, uh, Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent, Um, And you see this particular dynamic of fear being laid out, which is that I think at the root of most, if not all of our fears, is this fear of death, a fear of the other, and a willingness to sacrifice others to keep ourselves safe. And all of that, I think, emerges uh, or is given to us in story form in Genesis 3. And so uh, from there on, the exile from Eden and the, um, uh, the story of Scripture as human beings are both trying to be faithful and finding themselves unable to be faithful, um, it's a story, at least in part, about how fear keeps us trapped in cycles of violence. And so if you look then at how Jesus' life undoes some of what happened in the garden. Uh, You see Jesus, in fact, in another garden. Uh, It's it's sort of one garden mirroring another, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in that garden, uh, we're actually told for the first time in the Gospels that Jesus feels fear. And he knows what's coming. He knows that he's going to be arrested. He knows that death is imminent. And in that moment, instead of hiding, he faces the fear He recognizes what's going to happen, but he doesn't run from it. He doesn't run from God. In fact, his prayer is not, save me at all costs. His prayer is, your will be done. And then there's that moment where he could opt to sacrifice someone else for his own safety. Uh, When Peter draws the sword, and, and Peter's ready to defend him violently and strikes off the ear of one of the men who have come to take Jesus. And Jesus stops him and says, put away the sword. This is not the way Jesus is going to usher in the kingdom. And so in that moment, he rejects all of the things that Adam and Eve, these these first human beings in this early narrative, all of the things that took them down, all of the things that, that caught them in a spiral of fear, Jesus shows us another possibility. Um, he's not going to let fear of death 
uh, control him. And he's not going to become afraid of the other, even the other who was there to arrest him. And he's not going to sacrifice somebody else to keep himself safe. He shows us another possibility. And the resurrection, I think, is the redemption of that possibility. Um, To display to us that in the end, our capacity to face fear doesn't simply leave us in a place where there is an ultimate and utter sacrifice that is unredeemed, but that God's work is to redeem that kind of faithfulness that is going to be risky, but that ultimately is going to be uh, reclaimed by God um, and, and restored in a vision of what God wants of this world in the end. I heard you mention two things that I, I've seen in your work a little bit, the, the idea of the um, the ethic of security, which you were just talking about, you know, with feeling safe, and then this ethic of risk. Um, can you tell me more, a little bit more about what that means and what the, the difference between those two are and, and how we move from one to another in your view? Every ethic has some either spoken or unspoken highest good. So what is the thing that you would uh, serve above all else? Or what is the thing that you want to pursue above all else? And if that's the highest good, then everything else that is somewhat lower than that, even if it's good, is something that potentially might need to get set aside so I can pursue the thing that I think is the most important thing to pursue in this life. So for Christians, historically, we've had ways of defining that highest good. Jesus defines it when he's asked about what is the greatest commandment. It is to love God and love your neighbor. So that's one way of saying, above everything else, do this. Um, Jesus' parables describe that highest good as as the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of heaven. In our theological traditions, Thomas Aquinas uh, described it as friendship with God as our highest good. Uh, The Westminster Catechism has that wonderful opening um, uh, where it asks about the chief end of man, the chief end of humanity, is to glorify God and enjoy God forever. So there's another way of defining what's our highest end, what's the thing we want to pursue above everything else. And so Christians then um, have, throughout the centuries, found ways to orient ourselves toward that good. And it doesn't mean we've always done it perfectly. We certainly haven't. But we've tried to keep our eyes on that thing that is more important than anything else. And so our ethic, our ethos, our mode of life, our way of acting in the world is organized around the pursuit of that. So what I think I've, I, I've seen in the culture around us is that the highest good, whether it's a, a Christian theological highest good or a, a highest good defined by another faith or another set of values, those things that we might name as our highest aspirations, are getting replaced by a desire for safety and security. So that, in fact, even if we don't say it out loud, in fact, the thing we want above everything else is to be safe. And so that means that everything else, including loving God and loving our neighbor, might need to get set aside so that we can be safe. Now, I don't imagine that any uh, church group or any uh, group of pastors sat around and said, you know, I don't think loving God is really the most important thing anymore. Uh, I think let's just try to be safe. That's not really going to happen. You know, you're not going to get a group of people who say, you know, I've actually sort of overturned my entire value system. I think being safe is the most important. But what you find is in practice, 
in actual in the actual ways we live our lives, we act as if being safe or being secure is the most important thing. So it's one of those moments where you know we actually discover what we believe by looking at what we do. And what we do suggests something other than our highest good is to love God and neighbor. So, um, so when I talk about an ethic of security, that's what I'm talking about, uh, the displacement of that highest good. And I think what follows from that is um, a set of what I've described as false virtues, a set of uh, a way of naming some dispositions that in fact um, might look on the surface uh, to be uh, good, important, and certainly are important if what you want is to stay safe. But certainly within a Christian theological tradition, um, the virtues that keep you safe are not the virtues that help you follow Jesus. So, so things like accumulation and suspicion and preemption, these are ways of approaching the world around us that will probably keep us safer, but they don't help our lives look like Jesus. And, and I think those, those sort of habits of being start to get elevated, and we may not stop to ask ourselves, hmm, how is, how is suspicion making it really difficult for me to embrace hospitality? Um, we just find ourselves fundamentally being suspicious and assuming that that's just um, a sad necessity of our times. And that, I think, is the way that this ethic of security begins to displace um, the possibility that we can really serve God in risky ways. What does it mean? You know, I, I know that you're, um, you have a book out and it, the title is Following Jesus in a Culture of Fear. Um, and I know that that is being revised uh, this fall, coming out in October, hopefully. Um, so what does that mean to you to follow Jesus in a culture of fear? You've mentioned these, um, these attributes of Jesus and the things that we are asked to do as Christians that don't align with this ethic of security. Um, so how do, we, how do we turn more towards that ethic of risk? How do we follow Jesus in this culture of fear? I think one of the ways we do that is to try to regain a sense of trust in God's providence. Uh, providence is not a, a, a doctrine that's talked about a lot these days, although maybe among Presbyterians a little more than <laughs> others. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I think historically um, we've seen uh, providence for a long time as sounding something like, uh, well, if you believe in providence, you believe that God causes everything that happens. And, and I think for many of us, maybe, maybe most of us in a number of our, our Christian traditions these days, can't make that claim, don't want to make that claim, feel like that claim um, leaves us with a God who is, um, uh, who is fundamentally um, arbitrary, a God who might dole out good or dole out evil on any given day. So um, I think we've been a little reticent to talk about God's providence. But I do think if we look through Scripture, we find ways in which um, God doesn't push history, right? Not in a cause and effect sort of way where God says, okay, I'm going to make this thing happen now. But that God does pull history forward toward a good end. And that pushing-pulling metaphor I think is really important. Um, I think of something like uh, Romans 8.28. Um, right, Paul says that that uh, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to God's purpose. Paul doesn't say, 
God causes every bad thing to happen so that something good can arise, but that everything, right, the good stuff, the bad stuff, can work together for good. Uh, if we find ourselves aligned with the purposes of God, if we allow ourselves to be drawn into the future that God wants for us. Um, so, so I think providence is fundamentally about provision, which is that root word in the midst of providence. It's about God providing. It's not about God preventing. Um, you know, you can see from very early in Genesis, God chooses not to prevent stuff uh, that, that goes against God's will. God does not prevent Adam and Eve from uh, eating of the fruit of the forbidden tree. God uh, does not prevent the Israelites from being enslaved in Egypt. God does not prevent uh, the cross. But what God does is provide in the midst of that and then redeem. And so I think um, following Jesus in a culture of fear now is going to involve uh, being able to lay claim to some of that promise and also recognize that the promise is not that bad things won't happen to you. Mm, the promise yeah. is not that if you take the risk, you'll get rewarded. <laughs> uh, the nature of a risk is you might not. Yeah. The nature of risk is things might go very badly. And in order to live into the risk that's involved in our faith, we have to trust that at some point God can pull even those bad results into some sort of good end. So, so you know, if we tried to apply that today, if we tried to become um, that kind of risky people in the present, uh, I think we really would have to think about, um, you know, what sort of response do we have to the pandemic? What sort of response do we have to uh, racial unrest? And trying to ask ourselves, what does the proper kind of risk look like? Um, and to recognize that that People who are feeling fear on all sides of these issues um, are not simply fundamentally irrational or bad people. Um, you know, you can, you can be afraid of sickness and afraid of sharing that sickness with others, and you can be afraid of um, scarce medical resources, and those are all very legitimate fears. You can also be afraid of um, government overreach of government uh, denying people of liberties, telling people um, that they have to stay in their homes, uh, a level of government control that we're not always used to. Um, and there are some people who are afraid of that loss of liberty, of what it means for government to get that involved in personal decisions. And that is not a fundamentally irrational fear. It's just a fear. And it's a fear that has... Um, make some level of sense given uh, the sort of things, steps that are needed to be taken for uh, what's a national emergency. When we look at that sort of scenario, it doesn't help us to begin with um, that group is overly afraid, um, excessively afraid, shouldn't be afraid of those things, and therefore um, uh, that group is irrational and shouldn't be listened to. What we have to figure out is how to listen to these things, but also then ask, at least as people of faith, what are the kinds of risks that we need to take, um, given who Jesus is and what it looks like to love our neighbor right now, what it looks like to be more concerned about pursuing the good than avoiding evil, what would it mean for us to um, engage the culture right now? And that feels like the, the question of faith. That's the question of following Jesus. It's not always easy to say, oh, clearly Jesus would do X. 
Um, and that's where discernment and community has to happen. Uh, we have to ask one another, and even then, uh, we're not going to have absolute um, certainty that this is exactly what Jesus wants us to do, yeah. or this exactly looks like the presence of God in this moment. Um, but what we do need to figure out is how do we say, I'm willing to be safe enough, but I'm not going to pursue utter safety and certainly not at someone else's expense. Um, if I can be safe enough, then that reflects the peace of that command where, where Jesus says, not only love God, but love your neighbor as yourself. Attention to our own health and well-being is not fundamentally opposed to our love of God and neighbor. So taking all these pieces into account, um, being able to take some risks in the midst, midst of saying we're safe enough, uh, I think allows us to reach out toward others in this moment and um, look a little more like Jesus and look a little less like those who are just trying to um, protect some particular kind of interest that feels really important to us right now. Hmm. I love I love what you said. You know the idea of um, security, safety, but not at the expense of someone else. I, I I think that's a really interesting way to put it, and I've never thought about it like that before. Um, wh- when I think of you know what is that line of how safe do I need to be? You know, s- staying safe, but not at the expense of someone else. I really love the way that you put that. <laughs> I have two children, um, and you know I'm always thinking about as I am raising them up, how am I raising them up as far as their character, as far as, you know, who they will be? And how, how, what, how do you think we can equip this next generation to rise above or to, to recognize this, um, this fear that is not helpful? It's going to be a challenge. <laughs> oh, thanks. You know, um, yeah, uh, my kids are, are I, I think, probably a little bit older than yours, and I hope I haven't missed my chance to do that uh, formative work. You know, I, uh, I, I may have to be content with whatever I've done is what I've done, and they're going to take it from here. Sure, you did great. <laughs> I also think, uh, you know, developing character traits, as you were just, as you were just saying, you know, what are the, what are the particular uh, character traits or virtues or attitudes and dispositions that are that our young people are really going to need right now if they're going to overcome um, both fear and divisiveness. And, uh, you know, some of these I talk about in the book, um, certainly courage, um, trust, and hope. Um, and then uh, the, the virtues that I think sort of provide the alternative to suspicion and preemption and accumulation, which are um, hospitality and generosity and peacemaking. So if we can begin to be attentive to, um, you know, what are, the, what are the most important virtues or dispositions they're going to need in order to live um, faithful lives that actually show the world something that's distinctive, something that looks like God's in-breaking in the midst of these really um, difficult and divided times, they're going to need those sorts of uh, dispositions, those habits of the heart to help them display that. Um, and, you know, some of that comes through uh, the stories we tell, whether it's uh, biblical stories, stories of saints, stories of um, uh, contemporary leaders who are doing things that we think are risky and amazing and courageous and, and are serving the good in a way that they have to um, let go of their desire for utter safety. Um, but it's also practices that we engage in. And I think of uh, liturgical practices, how we pray, um, uh, you know, 
helping both our, our young people and sometimes our adults too understand what are the ethical ramifications of being baptized? You know, who do we become? What does it mean that we're a baptized people? Or what does it mean when we come to the Lord's Supper and we gather around a table and we share uh, food with one another? We share uh, the body and blood of Christ in some way with one another. What does that mean for how we then go out into the world? Uh, I think not only engaging those practices, but narrating them, especially for young people, um, so that the Lord's Supper comes to say something about... um, our capacity to find God present in uh, the material things of the world and also in one another, and then our capacity to find God present as we move away from the table and encounter others who weren't at that table with us, but uh, in whom we also see the image of God. Uh, So some narration of those practices, I think, can help us uh, begin to develop some of those virtues in uh, the young people that we're working with. Yeah, I love that. I I think that you know the, the hospitality is one of those those virtues that i i really you know would love my kids to 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 learn to have that to be a part of their a part of their lives because i do i think it's important it's it is challenging right now hospitality seems like something you do in person so it's right right <laughs> it seems a little challenging right now but i'm sure we'll find some ways to yeah. to do that <laughs> yeah i think so. you're exactly right hospitality is is uh, crucial for our ability to um, uh, to engage one another and to show the world something different. And I think there's the the sort of physical hospitality that is a welcome of another person. I think there's also um, something like intellectual hospitality, where we open ourselves to ideas that seem foreign to us and explore them with grace and curiosity. Mm. Yeah. It, it almost almost similar to empathy, you know, in that finding those um, spaces where we're learning new things about people that we've never met before. I feel like that's something that my, my kids who are in elementary school right now, um, that's something that's new-ish to them. Um, but it's fun to be alongside them as that as they're as they're learning that it's been it's been a fun journey for that that aspect. Yeah, I like the idea that empathy is a form of hospitality. That's uh, that, that's a really nice way of thinking about it. I hadn't put those two together, but now that you say it, um, that seems just right. <laughs> well, when you when you were as you were describing hospitality, that was really what what was coming to mind for me. Any pitfalls or anything that that you think that people we should be wary of as we uh, try to to move from one risk to another? Well, I think. One thing that's important to recognize, and I started with this, is that fear is not a bad thing. So the the answer to um, excessive or disordered fear is not to then, um, you know, try to decide I'm going to be fearless. And I see that sometimes. I see that in, in certain kinds of literature around uh, wellness or self-help, uh, that fear and love are alternatives, and you can only do one or the other. And if you're going to love, you have to get rid of fear. Mm. And I just, I think that's unrealistic. But I also <laughs> think it's a denial of something that's pretty basic to our humanity. Um, Thomas Aquinas, the, the medieval theologian, said that fear is born of love. Because if you don't love anything, then you don't really have any fear of its loss. And the more you extend yourself in love to other people, to activities, to institutions, uh, to communities, 
all of those then are things that could be threatened. They're things that could be lost. And so you set yourself up for much more possible hurt if you extend yourself more broadly in love. And therefore, fear is born of love, but that doesn't make it a bad thing. It's just a reflection of the fact that you have loved widely. So that fear is real, and it needs to be acknowledged, and fear can teach us something. Uh, Fear does alert us when something is threatened, and sometimes... uh, Sometimes fear can actually help us achieve a kind of self-awareness. When we feel afraid that something could be lost, sometimes that's the moment when we recognize how important that thing was to us. And it can have this moment of um, sort of bringing to clarity the goods that are in our lives. So that's one thing I would, I would say we need to be careful of, is not to just try to push fear away entirely. Um, there's a way of welcoming uh, fear as a piece of who we are as human beings, and also then not letting it control us. And I think, in fact, it is more likely to control us if we think that what we can do is just drive it out. Uh, because we're not going to drive it out. We're going to drive it somewhere into our subconscious, <laughs> and we're going to tell it, stay there, and I will not acknowledge you. Um, and then that always it's works to, really well. <laughs> it works really well. So then, the, right, then it's going to continue to shape us in ways that we can't even name and give words to. So uh, that feels like a really important piece for us to be aware of as we're, as we're trying to resist um, excessive fear or trying to resist fearing the wrong things or, or um, uh, fearing things that maybe aren't a threat, but, but someone has told us they're threatening and so we, we start to get worked up. Um, there are ways to uh, examine our fear without repressing our fear. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, This has been an awesome conversation and a really great start uh, to our conversation on fear. Um, We're actually going to be spending the next, uh, well, all of the fall, September through December, um, talking about um, different types of fear. Um, uh, Next month, uh, we will dive into the book of Psalms. Uh, with Dr. Beth Laniel Tanner, who is once again a long title, the Norman and Mary Cansfield Professor of Old Testament Interpretation at New Brunswick Theological Seminary. And she specializes in Hebrew poetry and the Psalms of Lament. So we are going to look at how lament winds its way through the psalmist's words and gives us a voice for the fears that we experience. So um, I, I thank you so much for this conversation. I think it's a, it's a great jumping off point for us to continue talking about um, fear. And, and next month, I think, will fit real in nicely with the idea that fear is, is an okay feeling to have. Um, <laughs> and it's, you know, we can, ex- we can experience it in healthy ways and just, um, what that might look like, uh, is what we'll be able to talk about next week. So thank you again, Dr. Bader say for joining me. Thank you, Jamie. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to Crossroads. Our managing editor is Jamie Staley. Edited by Rashina Brisbane, Kelly Bacayo, and Emily Dumbruff.